Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors have put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the root of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouths of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. Together. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Thanks, Meredith, and thanks, Simon. Well, we are in the middle of our summer series looking at 
some of the psalms. Uh, I haven't just picked random psalms for us to look at together. I've picked a series of psalms that all speak of what God's king is like. Last week we looked at Psalm chapter 2 with Michael. This week we're looking at Psalm 22, obviously. Next week I'll be speaking on Psalm 44. And then you're in for a treat because we have two new preachers or two newer preachers uh, speaking on Psalm 144. Naveen will be bringing us that in a couple of weeks' time. And then Nanda will be preaching on Psalm 110 in, I guess that's three or four weeks' time. So I'm really looking forward to that. I hope you are too. Now this morning we're looking at Psalm 22. And I wanted to kick us off, I want you to just think about what sort of a leader do you like to follow? Or what sort of a king would you like to put your allegiance in? What would it take for you to honour and revere and speak in a praiseworthy manner about that king or about that leader? Would that king need to be righteous? Would they need to bear up under even the greatest of duress for you to give that king honour? Would that king still need to view God as God even when they are tried to the point of death? I'm not sure if it's just me, but it seems that our current leaders in this day and age are increasingly less upright or less just. It might be a little bit harsh. I realize that our human leaders are just like us, sinful people, and we should therefore expect them to make mistakes. But I wonder if you sometimes think, who can I trust? Who acts with righteousness? I mean, probably the Australian cricket captain was held up in that position for many years, perhaps not so much any longer. Or our political leaders seem to be embroiled in One scandal after another. Newspapers are full of business leaders who are corrupt. Or we can read about our royal family and their different feuds. Is there a leader or is there a king who is worthy of our praise? I think that's the question that Psalm 22 is designed to answer for us. I hope today, after having looked through this psalm together, you'll leave firmly placing your allegiance, firmly placing your trust in a king who rules with righteousness. Psalm 22, it tells us, is a psalm of King David. King David was the great king of the Old Testament. He was held up as the archetypal king of Israel, the king who so much is written about. As a psalm, uh, I think you can see it's broken up into three different sections. If you've got a leaflet with you today, um, you may not have one, there may be some still out on the hall table. Um, I've listed the three different sections. I've labelled them as abandoned yet still praising God, defeated yet still praising God, and the praise of a victorious king. Three different sections. And I hope at the end of the morning you'll see the way in which a righteous king responds to both the despair of abandonment and the despair of defeat. I hope you'll see also that this this righteous king is ultimately vindicated. Well, let's begin by looking at the psalm. We'll start with verse 1, which sits over the three sections of this psalm in what commentators call a thematic introduction. So uh, if you've got your Bibles there, I'd love you to open them to page 857. I'm just going to read 
verse 1 to us again. It says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Here in verse 1 is the psalm in a nutshell, really. Where are you, God? I need your help. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry of anguish, isn't it? I wonder how you respond when it feels like God has abandoned you. Abandonment's a pretty raw feeling, isn't it? Many of us probably feel that rawly today. It's painful and it's isolating being abandoned. It's an experience that Beck Weathers knows too well. Some of you may have heard of him before. He was, or still is, I think, a a mountain climber who in 1996 joined an expedition to climb to the summit of Mount Everest. He had a one-eyed determination, like I think most mountain climbers who set out to climb Mount Everest have, to get to the top. He put everything on the line, his finances and his marriage, his job, he left everything to climb this mountain. And during his summer attempt, his eyes began to fail him. And when he got to 27,000 feet, very close to the top, but not quite there yet, he became completely blind. And so his team left him on the side of the mountain, saying, we'll come and pick you up on our way back down. And so Beck Weathers sat there at 27,000 feet, waiting for his team to come back down. After 10 hours, they still were not back. In fact, they never would come back. Apparently, there are more than 200 bodies on the top of Mount Everest. A bit later on, as night started to fall, Beck Weathers hooked in with another team of people who were coming down, and they led him while he was blind further down the mountain. But as night fell and a storm blew up, Weathers, kind of suffering the effects of lack of oxygen, threw his hands up into the air and just walked away from his climbing party into the darkness of the night. A little later on, a Russian guide made his way up to the mountain to find this team of climbers. He found them, and he also found Weathers, not too far away, but by that stage he'd taken off his gloves and he'd unzipped his jacket right down to his waist. And the Russian guide looked at him and thought, he's too far gone to bother saving. And so he left him there on the side of the mountain at night abandoned for a second time on the mountain. When morning came, a Canadian doctor also found Beckweathers there, and the doctor's words said this, he was as close to death and yet still breathing as any patient I've ever seen. And so knowing the difficulty of bringing a very sick person down from the mountain, that Canadian doctor left Weathers for a third time, abandoned near the summit of Mount Everest. Beck Weathers knows what it means to be abandoned, but you don't need to climb Everest to know what abandonment feels like, do you? You probably can all reflect on different times in your life where you felt abandoned. Perhaps you were lost as a child in a supermarket. There's a story in our family to do with Meredith and her sister when they were kids. It involves Meredith's younger sister getting lost at the MCG during a football game, abandoned in 50,000 people or something like that, only to be found with a loud broadcast speaker call. I wonder today though, do you ever feel abandoned by God? If you've got your Bibles open, have a look at the pain of David in verse 2. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. 
Is David echoing sentiment that you feel sometimes? Maybe you don't feel that today, but perhaps at some point in your life you're able to sympathize with this. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. I wonder what you're crying out for today. Maybe it's relief from pain. Maybe you're sick. Maybe it's the darkness of depression or the loneliness of life. Perhaps it's frustration at your current job. Maybe you're grieving over something in life. Trapped in a situation that you can't seem to get out of. Maybe you're crying for a partner in life or perhaps for a spouse to change in some way or another. You might be wondering, why is God not answering? This is David's experience, isn't it, here? God seems silent and he seems distant. It's not that David is doubting God's existence at this point, though. Jared Wilson, who's a commentator on the psalm, um, has a, a, a comment on this verse. I think it's very important um, for us. I've got it on the screen behind me. I'm just going to read it to you. Jared Wilson says this. He says, Divine silence is for the psalmist an example of the mysterious exercise of God's free will. It is this difficult circumstance that God is aware and could answer, but does not, that fuels the psalmist's painful confusion and dismay. Is that your experience? I think God could, perhaps even should answer, and yet he chooses not to. As we read Psalm 22, I think it's worth remembering who David is as a person as well. Remember David as a boy, he stood before Goliath, that train killer, all nine feet, nine inches tall of him, and there was David armed with nothing other than a sling and some stones taken from the creek. As a boy, David stood before this warrior confident in the deliverance and salvation of his God and this is the same person who now cries out to God looking for a response and yet despite feeling abandoned and despite feeling distant from God David's still able to reflect on the reality of a God who is worthy of trust it's a kind of second voice in the psalm David reflects in verses three to five that in the past God responded to the cries of the Israelites He not only heard their cries, but he acted. Despite the pain of abandonment, David's still able to speak about the justice and the righteousness of his God. He's still able to speak of him as a God who knows and acts. A God who provides deliverance and salvation. And this is, in a way, kind of how Psalm 22 works. Despite his pain, David does not curse God, but rather praises him. For the exact thing that he feels is lacking in his life. When he feels abandoned, he praises God for his faithful and tender care of Israel in the past. Have a look at verses 6 to 8. There David continues to outline the perilous circumstances that he finds himself in. Mocked, insulted and despised. It's so harsh is his treatment that he doesn't even feel like a person anymore. He feels like a worm. The insults mock his position. Mock his position of trust. He trusts the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. And what does David do? Well, he reflects on the reality that it was God who brought him out of the womb 
who from infancy has been his God. Insults and mocking and derision lead David to praise God. So not long after that Canadian doctor looked over Beck Weathers, he actually woke up. He felt an overwhelming desire apparently to go back to sleep. Um, That's just the effects of high altitude. But he rolled over and his arm, which was no longer in a glove or a jacket, was frozen solid. And the feeling of that banging like a piece of wood onto the ground scared Weathers so much that the rush of adrenaline that went through his veins, he got up and he walked himself down the side of the mountain. Today he doesn't bear any grudge to those who abandoned him on the mountain, but he certainly doesn't speak of them in a praiseworthy manner either. David is able to praise a God who feels distant. That, I think, is the nature of God's king. Perhaps you set out to make this year, 2019, a year of improvement in your life. Does it feel like you're failing six days in? I can sympathize. Maybe you're stuck in a job that won't change or a life situation, no matter how many times you cry out to God, he just seems distant. Yet our God is a trustworthy God, a God who is righteous, a God who acts, a God who delivers. He always acts according to his righteousness. The point of trouble or the point of distress in our lives will be different for all of us. For David, the kind of root of his concern is sort of outlined in verses 12 to 18. It seems that David is being threatened by enemies, enemies that seem to be getting the upper hand. He describes them as fearsome beasts. And I kind of like the way he does that because it makes the psalm a bit more relatable, doesn't it? Was David's concern an internal civil war? Or was it the northern tribes of Bashan invading him? The psalm doesn't really say, and it probably would make it less relatable if it did, wouldn't it? Because most of us are unlikely to feel threatened at the moment by a country invading us. Few of us, I think, would lie awake at night worrying about New Zealand mounting an army to come and attack us. We don't pray for protection from the mighty armies of New Zealand and the wrath of Jacinta Arden. That's not our prayer but we all do have metaphorical bulls and lions and wild animals in our lives that drain our physical energy and wipe out our courage. For David, his enemies leave him physically exhausted. Have a look at verse 14. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. They leave him emotionally spent with his courage gone. My heart has turned to wax It has melted within me. And the result is utter exhaustion for David. My mouth is dried up like a pot's herd. That's um, a fragment of pottery that you you get from those archaeological digs. That's what a pot's herd is. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Have you been really thirsty when that, you're so thirsty, so pushed to the edge of your limit that your tongue sticks to the roof of your mouth? When I was at school, I used to be in a rowing team, and we had these indoor rowing trainers. Um, They would torture those machines because they had a a screen on them, and the numbers never lied, essentially. You could not just sit easily in the front of the boat, letting everyone else do the work. The numbers never lied. And I can remember how those machines pushed you to the limit, 
tongue sticking to the roof of your mouth, exhausted, exhausted, fatigued, spent. And have a look at verse 15 in our passage. You lay me in the dust of death. God's king pushed right to the point of death. But David does not give up asking God for deliverance despite the silence that meets his cries. In verse 20, he again asks for deliverance. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of dogs. Rescue me from the mouths of the lions. Save me from the horns of wild oxen. It's a great encouragement for us, isn't it? To not stop coming to God with our prayers, with our petitions and with our requests. He may seem absent, He may seem silent, but our very life is held in his hands. I think the psalm serves a number of purposes for us today, but but surely at least one of those purposes is to remind us that despite the hardships that we might be going through in this life, we can maintain a praise of God, that we can keep coming to him with prayerful requests. When we get to verse 22 in the psalm, and I think it's a major transition point in our psalm, it seems to me as we read this that by verse 22, God seems to have listened to the cries of the suffering one, listened to the cry of help from the afflicted one. I assume here that what David is saying is that God has now listened to his cry for help. Let me read to you from verse 22. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him, all you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. He's not hidden his face now, but has listened to the cry for help. By the way that William Taylor puts it at this point, he says, Here is the vindication of the king. See, God has listened to his cry for help. And David urges others to join him in the praise of his God. I like the three kind of active words in this passage. Praise him, honor him, and revere him. David's clear. He wants his brothers and sisters to worship God, to praise him, to honor him, and to revere him. In verses 26 to 29, there's almost a future aspect to the praiseworthy nature of God as well. I wonder if you can see that there. The poor will eat, the ends of the earth will remember, all the riches of the earth will feast. It reminds me, this section of the psalm, reminds me of some of those passages in the book of Revelation about what the new heavens and the new earth will be like and the joy that awaits those who share it. So we've seen in our psalm so far, we've seen David cry out from a place of abandonment while still recognizing the rule of God. We've seen him physically distressed as his enemies encircle him and he's still not cursing God. And then in this last section, we've seen him vindicated as the king who trusted in God. God has now heard his cries. So why do you think David wrote this psalm? What's he trying to do with this psalm? Well, here's what I think is going on. David, remember, he is Israel's archetypal king, is saying, this is what God's true king looks like. 
Despite hardship, despite turmoil, despite suffering, despite even abandonment, God's real king remains faithful and righteous. He acts in a way that brings honour and reverence and praise to God. David's showing us here what God's true king looks like. But I think if we really want to understand this psalm, we need to consider not just David the king, but God's eternal king. Sure, David was Israel's great king, but God's true and eternal king, his supreme king, well, that's Jesus. He is God's righteous king. I want you to see today that he embodies Psalm 22 perfectly. To do that, I'd like you to keep your finger in Psalm 22. Hopefully your finger doesn't hurt quite as much as mine, but keep your finger in Psalm 22 this morning. Uh, But also, I'd love you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, which is on page 1,551 of your Bible. So keep your finger in Psalm 22, because we're going to flick back there, and come with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, verse 27, on page 1,551. In Matthew 27, this is, we're reading just before Jesus' death on the cross. Matthew chapter 27, verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus to the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. So just put your finger in Matthew 27. Come back with me to Psalm 22, verse 7. See the mocking of God's king? I'll read on in Matthew 27. Hail the king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and they took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. And they led him away to crucify him. How do they do that? They pierce his hands and his feet. Have a look at verse 16 of Psalm 22. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry his cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. I expect he was thirsty. Verse 15 of Psalm 22. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. That's there in verse 18 of Psalm 22. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed a written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. Verse 7 of Psalm 22. And they said, you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants. Just have a look at verse 8 of Psalm 22. It says almost exactly the same thing. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. For he said, I am the son of God. 
In the same way, one of the rebels who crucified him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And here's the real kicker. At about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how the psalm starts, isn't it? Jesus is quoting verse 1 of Psalm 22 on the cross. There can be no mistaking, I think, between the connections between the crucifixion of Jesus and Psalm 22. The mocking, the insults, the dividing of the clothes by lot, hands and feet pierced, the trusting in God, the gloating of the onlookers, and finally Jesus himself quoting directly from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does Jesus do this? Why does he quote this psalm on the cross? Remember the psalm points us to what God's righteous king looks like? Well, here is Jesus saying, I am God's righteous king. This is what the righteous king looks like. Abandoned, despised, scorned, mocked, insulted, and yet faithful. Fulfilling his vows, acting with absolute righteousness. On the cross, he has done it. That's the way the psalm ends, or it is finished, as it says in the Gospels. The act of a righteous king, the act of God's true king. So here in Jesus is the one who was scorned for our sake, Here is the one who was crushed for us. Here's the one by whose wounds we are healed. Here is God's true king. God's righteous king who suffered for our sake. The king who bore up under the punishment of God for our sake. And because of Jesus' work on the cross the world will be put right. The poor will eat and be satisfied. People to the ends of the earth will remember the righteous king. After all, the whole earth is his dominion. Now, what are we to do with this picture of what God's righteous king is like? I think Psalm 22 gives us the answer to that as well. Where to praise that king. Where to praise God and his king. I love the way that Psalm 22 ends. It says this, it says, Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. So great is this king, God's righteous king, so righteous, his deeds are so just, and so worthy of our praise, that we're to tell him, about him to our kids. We're to encourage them to praise him and to honour him and to revere him. And they, in turn, are to do likewise to their kids, those who are not yet born. Psalm 22 shows us what the righteous king looks like and leads us to a point where we're to praise that king. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you that in our world where it seems there are so few who we can honour 
revere and praise, we thank you for this psalm which shows us the praiseworthy nature of your son, Jesus. Father, we pray that you would help us to put our trust and our hope and our allegiance in him. We thank you that the source of David's praise comes from you and we ask that you would uh, give in us a great spring of praise for you that we might sing of, sing of your goodness through what you've achieved for us on the cross through your son. Amen. So I have one question this morning. Um, I encourage you, keep, please do SMS questions in if you would like to ask questions of me or of the text. The question says, uh, with reference to verse 17, which I'll read to you, all my bones are on display, people stare and gloat at me. Uh, they divide my clothes among them. I think uh, also reference probably to they pierce my hands and feet. How does this come about for David? It seems kind of mysterious. We kind of make sense in light of the resurrection, but we need to remember that this is written some 3,000 years before Jesus died on the cross. How do these things happen for David? I think that's the source of the question. Um, I think David is speaking metaphorically about what it looks like for him to be under attack and persecution as a king. I'm not sure that these things are necessarily happening exactly literally to David. Um, the piercing of his hands and feet. Um, if you have a look at the bottom of your black Bibles, you'll see a D there, a little footnote. Uh, that points us down to what we call some textual variances. So uh, different, like very early manuscripts have different kind of ways of dealing with this particular passage. It's one of those ones that's a little hard to translate. The piercing of the hands and feet may be the result of an attack by a lion. I think you'll see that there if you look at what it says in some, some of the Masoretic texts. Um, so that's kind of a little bit what's on view here. Um, I think it's metaphoric for what it feels like for David to be surrounded by enemies and to be persecuted and to be crying out to God for deliverance in that situation. I don't think he's actually being attacked by a lion, just that's what it feels like. Uh, these words are then clearly picked up by Jesus and by the gospel writers to show much more literally what happened to Jesus. And I think that helps us to see uh, the comparison between God's true king in Jesus and the archetypal king that David holds up here as what a righteous king would look like. hope that makes sense. If not, please um, come and catch me afterwards. Thanks, Miff.